Oh, we're quite sleepy out there today. Good morning, everyone. Uh, grab your Bibles and come to James chapter 1. Sorry, I'm just clearing the decks in front of here. I don't know if I need a ribbon at some stage, I've got one handy. Um, just when you thought we'd left James, <laughs> we're staying in the book of James. And uh, there's a specific reason. Paul Tripp, in his excellent book called uh, on marriage, called What Did You Expect?, says that we miss a lot of what the Bible says about marriage when we only focus on the few passages that talk about marriage. And I, th- I think what it's, it sees is that when you see the, the lens of marriage through the wider story of what the Bible is talking about, it helps you to understand what the purpose of marriage is. And uh, as you'll, you'll see that as we, as we develop in this. We've had a few people ask the question, well, why, why do a series on marriage? <laughs> it doesn't affect everybody. Everybody is in different places where they are at. Uh, it's a very emo- emotive subject for people. It's a very, it can be a very difficult subject to, to, to talk about and to raise. Even if you're in a marriage, um, there'll be plenty of people here within this room who have plenty of different experiences of marriage and what you're feeling right at this moment. And you're nervous and wondering, what is this pastor guy going to say about it? Is he going to load pain and shame or something in that space? But the reason we want to do that is I looked up various stats and I had all sorts of books and quotes and bits and pieces for you, but um, I don't think it's difficult to be able to say that marriages feel under pressure more so than in the past. There's a whole lot of factors that seem to have come to bear in this space that have created difficulty and tension with it, and we'll explore some of those as we go along. And so as elders, we felt that it's important to bring it in front of the wider church. One of the elders said, well, uh, we could do, we, you know, we talked about doing it, say, as an elective or something or other like that. The problem is you get people who are keen on you know, sorting things out who go to those things, and then a bunch of people, often like me, <laughs> who would avoid them, right? So it's better for us all to kind of hear it and all hear it together. And not just people who are married. But marriage is a key concept in Scripture, isn't it? It's embedded there from creation. But I want to say right at the start, marriage is not the ultimate relationship. And we know that for a few reasons. The first reason is that the life that we honor and follow and put up as uh, who we say we are, we're Christians, we follow the life of Christ, is a person who never married, right? Lived his life full, rich, complete, as a single person. So we've got a problem there, don't we? (laughs) Right? It can't be an ultimate. In fact, Jesus was asked a question one day, and they were trying to trick him, the Sadducees, who uh, had issues around the resurrection, and they tried to trick him with all these questions about, well, this person who's married multiple times, who will they be married to in heaven? And Jesus says, well, there isn't marriage in heaven, right? So it can't be an ultimate relationship. Our ultimate relationship was with Christ. Our, Our significance as a person comes from our personhood and our relationship with God. I'm not trying to downplay marriage and the significance of it, but I think we need to keep it contextually in its right place. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 makes a very interesting um, point. He says, whatever relationship you're in, and he gives multiple different ones, the point of your existence is to honor God with your life. 
and seek his kingdom first. And then he goes, there's a complication if you're married. Because the complication in seeking God's kingdom first is that you have to have a focus on one other person, rightly so, but it actually uh, affects your ability in some senses in God's kingdom work, which a person who is single doesn't have. So I just want to say up front, like, that the world has this kind of concept that you're not a complete person if you're not in a relationship with somebody. The Bible does not teach that at all. In fact, I, w- I often say is um, that the best people to go into a marriage are the ones who understand that their ultimate relationship was with Christ. Because if you're going into a marriage to seek something like that, you're going to be desperately disappointed. And marriage is a disappointing relationship at the best of times, right? Let alone going in with that layered on top of it. So our world has this mixed kind of view of marriage. It puts it down in a lot of places, and yet at the same time, it piles a whole heap on it. Ernest Becker wrote a book called The Denial of Death. He's not a Christian guy, but he said, I wonder what will happen when people lose their connection or their understanding of their significance and security coming from God. What will happen? He said, I'll tell you what will happen. It will get loaded into romance. And so now, what happened was all of a sudden that the marriage partner now is this exceedingly um, uh, critical space in terms of, of how people feel about themselves. And we'll explore that a little bit more as we go through today. Okay, let's start in James chapter 1 and, um, and see where we roll from there. Um, <clears throat> so familiar text, but let's think of it in the concept of what God's purpose is in general in people's lives but then specifically looking at it in marriage. And by the way, this is a three-part series. Today lays foundation. Uh, the next two weeks are going to be, uh, I guess, more practical. I mean, this is practical, but it, 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 it lays a foundation upon which we can um, leverage some things off that. And uh, in the next couple of weeks, um, just to encourage you to come back, I'm going to share a lot more about my own experience of being married. Uh, we celebrated 28 years of marriage at the beginning of this year. Thank you. Um, please clap, Kath. She was the one who deserves it. Um, there's a guy who wrote a book uh, on marriage, and he, he dedicated it to his wife. And he just said, uh, you know, to da-da-da-da, I dedicate this book, because she still thinks it's hilarious that I have become an expert in marriage. <laughs> Um, I'm no expert. <clears throat> I, I entered marriage extremely naive, and I entered it with a whole lot of expectations and issues, emotional issues, all sorts of things that have caused many problems in our marriage. And so I come to you not as somebody who, uh, who is the source. I'm coming to you as somebody who's learning that the source that sustains our marriage is something that I need to draw on from outside of me and from divine wisdom. James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Tim Keller, in his 
very excellent book. I'll recommend some, some various books and stuff as I go along, but I, I, I think Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, is, is, is exceptional. But he describes in this, it's like this. If you imagine your character is a bridge and it has some cracks and little issues with it, you know, that might cause problems um, if someone crosses it, uh, you know, you, you imagine your character like that and it can handle the stresses and strains of some normal things that are going on, people walking over it, maybe someone riding a bike or something or other like that. So you get these little tests that come along. He would say marriage is like a gigantic Mack truck driving over your bridge of your character. It's a test. It's quite an extreme trial. It reveals things about yourself that that you had no idea, or maybe you had an inkling of, but it, it, it magnifies them and exposes them, right? We don't think of, no one, no one writes hallmark cards about marriage as being a test. No one writes, uh, it says at a wedding that marriage is this gigantic trial which will show up and reveal all your faults. We don't talk in that kind of way. But I want to say to you, that's what it's like. And actually, that's in many ways what God wants it to be, right? Look what he says in here. He says, I want testing trials, you persevering to them, so that you may be what? Mature and complete. Isn't that an interesting goal? To be mature and complete. So then we ask the question, right? What is maturity? What is completeness? Should I desire this? Yes. <laughs> but then how do I gain this? And what does this look like in my marriage? I hope you're seeing that this is a, a very applicable as a marriage text, even though it doesn't talk anything about it. I love this sticker. It's not that I'm immature, it's just that you started it. <clears throat> <laughs> I think immaturity has three elements to it. We can think of it as a child, and we say they're immature <clears throat> because they're selfish. They're orientated, their world is orientated towards self, self-needs, self-wants, self-demands, right? We, we get that concept, right, if we see it in, in children. Another element of it is this, is this idea of imp, 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 impulsiveness, just going and doing things. There's something in front of me, so I'll go after it. Oh, that looks like fun, but not thinking necessarily of kind of consequences and stuff that sit with it. And unstable, this is the idea from Ephesians 4, isn't it? This tossed to and fro by all winds of doctrine and da-da-da that's floating kind of around. There's, a, there's an instability there. I don't know quite who I am. I haven't settled down in that sort of space. Now let's think for a moment. The implication from James 1 is that I and you are actually immature. Now, many of you are a little bit further down the track of maturity than I am, <laughs> but you're still not there, right? Because that's what James 1 is talking about. He says, my goal is with you in your life that you may have maturity 
and completeness, which I understand is, is this idea of, of knowing what you are meant to do and getting on with it and doing. I think this, this, there's a character and a role kind of function that sits there within it so that you can just, just get on with what you're meant to do in the kingdom of God work. And so he's saying, just sit there in that moment that we are all immature. When I got married... I often say, I, when we got married, I was a I was very mature, twenty-one year old. <laughs> Kath was just a, just she was twenty, about to turn twenty-one. It's frightening when you look at people that age now <laughs> and think that's what we were. Because we did, we thought we were, you know. Well, I did. But he's saying this as a as a general character that we are like this. We spend so much time thinking of ourselves. We spend so much time just impulsively following what sits in front of us in the immediate to get gratification. We don't have a stability to us in our, in our minds and our souls. And he says, I want to change that. Paul Tripp, in that book that I said uh, before, What Do You Expect? He says, you have to remember in marriage that you are a sinner married to a sinner. You are an immature person married to an immature person. Now, you like the second part of that sentence. <laughs> We're a bit more uncomfortable with the first part of it. And so maturity has a different flavor to it. There's a self-giving element to it. I think this is, again, from Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love. I have an ability to be able to speak truth. Mature people do that, right? They, they lose a little bit of the fear of some sort of the, the consequence kind of with it or the worry about what people will think all the time or da-da-da. It's not that they lose empathy. It's just that they lose that, 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 uh, that, that barrier that stops them speaking truth to people that they care for and want to grow and develop. And if you don't do that, you stay in the superficial, which is often what we do in our relationships, or we bypass the things that are important. We're meant to speak truth and love. That comes from people who are self-giving and have a maturity. There's a steadfastness about us that's not driven by, by impulsiveness of the, of the immediate. And there's a reliability to us because it's built on things that we know are sure and steady. What I want to do is just quickly go through James 1 and pull out the points of it. And I want you to see here, I've done it as a binary, you know, either or, but I want you to think of it as being pulled in different directions. And um, the world has a, a set, of, a narrative, a story that it wants to pull us in a particular direction. And God here, in, uh, through the book of James, is, is calling us in another one. And I want you to think about what that tension looks like a little bit. So the first one is, what, what's the goal of existence? What's our, what's our goal of just of, of, of life that sits there with it? And James says it's to grow us and get out of our immaturity and our infant nature and bring ourselves into a, into a place where we can grow. Now, I'm trying to build a case here that I think that a key purpose of marriage is that that is a place that it happens. It's not the only place, but boy, it's a significant place, Right? But if, if, if I include this in my, in my life goal and then I bring it into a marriage kind of goal, that I want a place where there is happiness and, and a place where I can have self-expression. That is, if uh, my, the, the person provides a space 
for me to be me and me to be the best me, right, is orientated towards self. Whereas if, if we see what James is calling here to, and this idea of maturity, it's moving away from that into a, a place of maturity and completeness. Okay, let's explore this a little bit, because this is one of the things that people have talked a lot about is, is how marriage has changed over the years. So this is a sociologist, he says, marriage changed from a formal institution that meets the needs of the larger society, right? So this is going back a couple of hundred years, um, you're in family groups, uh, you're, you're, you're struggling to make an existence, right? It's hard just to get food on your table and da-da-da-da, right? So you're, you're not worried a lot about self-expression and the, the best you, <laughs> you know, you're worried about some food on your table that evening, Right? And you're thinking uh, it drew, drew you into a larger society kind of situation. So to a com- companionate relationship. So as we, we got more wealth and, and stability in society, it moved into a companionate relationship that met the needs of the couple and their children. And then m- probably the last kind of 50 years or so, it's moved more and more to a private pact that meets the psychological needs of individuals. So now we go in with a different set of expectations within, within marriage. Do you understand that? So I'm going in with, with more and more thinking that it's a place for my needs to be met and met through this, other, uh, through this other person with a particular idea that it's about happiness and self-expression. Now I'm doing this, I mean, we all know we're a mixture of all of this kind of stuff. I'm just saying what the pull is that sits there in this, in this place. Now there's a problem when we have happiness as our primary uh, element that we think about in marriage. Let me, let me just show you a graph. So this is, um, there's bunches of studies all over, all over the world, and they all come up with pretty much the same result. So along the bottom line there is the number of years before and after marriage, and up the side there is satisfaction with life or happiness or su- some subjective kind of thing that happens like that. And so you toddle along in the few years sort of leading up to it um, at a certain level of satisfaction and happiness in your life. And then you get engaged and you get all excited and your happiness level goes up. Do you see where it peaks? Right? Somewhere around the wedding day or maybe soon after, but generally not long. And then what does it do? Crashes back down again. Well, not crash, but do you see it comes back down to a place that it was before? Now, just think about the implication of that for a moment. What is that excitement there that pushes you up into that peak kind of happiness around the wedding kind of thing, but is lost as it, as it falls away? And then think about what happens when that falls away and you make kind of happiness your goal within it. What will you start to do? You'll look elsewhere. You look other places to find your happiness other than your spouse. And this is often a place where all sorts of things can take place, right? You can, f- you can fill in the blank in that, in that. What the Bible, is, I think, is saying is there's something deeper at play here that we need to think about. And it's not saying happiness is unimportant. I think what it's saying is happiness ultimately is a consequence of some deeper things, deeper um, larger balls being placed in that jar, if you know what I mean by that, by that analogy. Second thing that our text says is this, is where do we get our source of wisdom when we're short, when there's a knowledge gap, when there's a skills shortage? 
And I, I want you to think of marriage as like a muscle rather than something like a bone that's kind of fixed. It gets stronger when it's worked. When it's, we, we, I talking to someone yesterday who's been in a moon boot for three months, right? And their muscle is wasted away. What are they doing? They're doing exercises to strengthen it back up. But I want to say that we, we often, our wisdom sources, we think we can do it, well, I, can, I can find it in me. Or we can find it in ourselves, just, just us kind of together. You're two immature sinners trying to sort out your stuff. I'm saying there's a wisdom that we, that we need to bring to bear into our marriages. And I, I believe very sincerely that it often happens by opening ourselves up to be vulnerable with others. One of the, the great things that happened in our marriage was when we were sitting in a room with a couple who we thought had the most amazing marriage ever. And then um, him looking slightly embarrassed, but her telling the story was going, you know what, that period of our life, Man, if I had believed in divorce, I would have left you. And we're, look, and we're looking at it going, whoa. But for us, it was actually, well, for me, it was quite helpful of going, man, you can actually, there's times you feel that way. There's times you feel that way. But you can't let your feelings dominate that sense of what you mean. So you're drawing on a wisdom that's coming from without, not a within one that is shaping us in poor ways. And then this uh, idea of trials and testing. The emotion described here is when we come against trials, we, we see them as a crisis, with sorrow, with pain. James is trying to reframe them. He says, if it's producing something better in you, then you should have, have a concept that is a joyful thing. Man, that's hard, Right? That emotion is a difficult one, to, but he's calling it because if you understand the greater thing that is happening there. And so the, what's the posture then towards it? See, if I see it as a crisis and sorrow and pain, I will try and escape. I will flee from it. But if I see it's a place where I can grow and mature, and then both of us can grow and mature, ideally, if you are, are both have that idea with it, and by the way, the idea is persevere, is not that you get some immediate response. This is talking about struggling along over a prolonged period of time to achieve something. You, your kids aren't going to mature in a week, <laughs> right? It's not, it's not how it works. Neither do we as people or married people as couples. And then just this, if we apply it specifically in this marriage space. See, the world tells you this crazy idea around compatibility. That is, if I find the right person, I will be happy. And marriage will be easy. And the lie that's with that is, is you get a little bit down the track and it's hard. And so your conclusion becomes what? I made the wrong decision. It's the wrong person, right? We're incompatible. It's such a lie, but it's such a, a deceptive, long-to-believe lie. The Bible actually says we're incompatible. 
just from the basic idea of male and, male and female, we share a lot in common, but there's this concept of a little bit of opposites. We're different, right, in some pretty key kind of areas. But you're, you'll be incompatible for all sorts of reasons. Your backgrounds, your family, your whatever it kind of is. There's all sorts of things that just go bang, right? But if you see it go, wow, well, we need to grow if we're going to make this work. Do you see how it changes the mindset with it? It's this rather than self-expression and happiness, I'm giving in to self-giving and satisfaction. Mm. I um, <clears throat> I don't think this is easy for us to walk into. I um, there's a person I really enjoy reading her work. I'm just started on her book called How to Act Right When Your Spouse Acts Wrong which is one of the questions that should come to you <laughs> if uh, you're thinking about what I said, because you, it's not always that both parties are keen on that, right? But she speaks at a lot of events, and what she's noticed is, she says, unfortunately these days I meet many who aren't looking for deep personal change or growth. Instead, they want a quick fix or relief from pain. She notices it with the books that are on sale. She says there's a whole lot of books that, that include the word happiness in them, and she says they sell out every single time afterwards. And then there's a, a set of books about growth and discipleship, and she says they sell very few of them. <laughs> Interesting thing to note, isn't it? It's kind of like surgery without anesthetic, this sort of stuff. We don't want to acknowledge it. We don't want the humility. I don't, right? But if I can reframe in a way that understands what is happening and pictures something greater in the future, then it's deeply helpful for me and it's exceedingly helpful for my spouse. This concept, I think, sits in, um, embedded within the wider concept of what the gospel is doing. The gospel saves me from my sin, but it does something else over a prolonged period of time. Paul said it, he says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, now listen to this bit, that those who live should what? No longer live for themselves, but for him who self-sacrificially died for them and was raised again. The picture of what he's doing in all of our individual lives and in our marriages is that we're seeing a reenactment of this, that we move away from our selfishness towards honoring God and then honoring the work that he's doing in the spouse that I'm with. So I leave you with this. What will drive your marriage is your mutual commitment to each other's godly maturity and completeness. We're going to pick that up next week. <laughs> You're welcome to send me questions. Hopefully you've got a few because we've whizzed through something very big and there was a whole lot more I wanted to say in that space. But I want you to just reflect on this in the next few days. Think about what that means for you. Think about what that means um, uh, for those who are married. Think about what that means within your marriage. But for all of us, think about what it means for people who we know are married. 
How do we support people in this process of what God is doing, what His Spirit is doing in people's lives? Let me pray, and then the band is going to come up and um, play our final song. Heavenly Father, we first of all thank you that in coming and and, uh, self-sacrificially dying in our place, you revealed to us how immature we were, how (laughs) self-absorbed, how flaky, (laughs) how impulsive. And yet even in that, you said, I want to save you from that and bring you into a life of maturity. Lord, help us to understand that that is going to be difficult for us and it's going to be painful. Can you help us, Lord, because we don't naturally move towards us and we need your help to do it. And I'd say we need the help of our community to do it as well, Lord. I just pray for everybody here in this room. Lord, I just acknowledge there'll be some here who are listening to this who hear this and they're in a place of pain or disappointment or frustration or bitterness. Lord, would you take whatever emotion that is, whatever space they are in at this moment, and would you meet them there? Would you help them to understand what this deep concept within Scripture, how it speaks to them in their life right at this moment? Would you help them to understand that you're probably using whatever it is that they're feeling to grow them, even though it might not feel like that for them at this time? Lord, would you give us a big picture of what you're doing with us in our lives? Thank you that you don't leave us in our sin and our selfishness, but you are moving us into a place that one day we will be the glorious selves that you, you created us to be and that you are removing our fallenness that we will one day live with you forever in paradise. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with us.